Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, the first women's game. On December 3rd, 1893, at San Francisco's Central Park, the Colleen Bronze and the Bonnie Lassies met in the first documented women's soccer game in the United States. Although women had been playing football since before the arrival of the Europeans and undoubtedly participated in various types of football games all throughout the 18th and 19th century, the match in San Francisco in 1893 is the first known game played according to the association rules, or what we today know as soccer. On today's episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about the development of women's sports in the second half of the 19th century and explain a little bit about how and why the game took place. I argue that it's part of a broader cultural change that took place in the United States, along with the development of a sporting and entertainment culture in San Francisco that included soccer, both men's and women's. The second half of the 19th century saw the development of commercialized mass sport, especially in the United States and in Great Britain. This commercialized mass sport was, however, generally limited to male leagues, and women were denied access to formal league-based competitions. Instead, individual sports, although even those could be also limited in certain ways, as we'll see in a few minutes, and non-competitive athletic activities were deemed more appropriate for women. Historian Susan Kahn makes the distinction or, or describes a distinction that emerges between what was known as manly sport and female exercise. And there was a genuine belief among medical officials and, and others that too much exercise was potentially damaging to women, both physically, it could prevent their ability to bear and, and raise children, and morally. The second half of the 19th century also saw some changes that began to open up the playing field and allow women to participate in sports and in more sports than were generally available previously. We see shifts in medical views. It was no longer viewed as absolutely detrimental to women's health to participate in moderate athletic activities. We also see the development and the founding of uh, women's colleges and a general rise in uh, female attendance at universities and colleges in general. So in 1870, there were about 11,000 female college students in the United States, and by 1900, there were 85,000. Also, we see the training and the emergence of a number of female physical education instructors who would go out and take jobs at these universities or other schools and educational institutions and begin to provide instruction in athletic activity and sports to women and young girls across the country. At times, these uh, rules of certain types of games might be altered in the belief that they were too rough or too complex or too difficult for women to master. And there were certain sports that were deemed more appropriate and thus allowable for women to participate in. And these included games like field hockey, uh, basketball after its development, uh, tennis, and general uh, athletic activities or physical education or what we might call calisthenics were also acceptable. A distinction increasingly uh, be became made between what were respectable sports or athletic activities, and these were generally ones that were available to and were 
played by middle and upper class women. And then there was another world of disreputable or maybe borderline sports uh, that were or a- activities, athletic type activities that were part that were mainly the domain of working class women. So respectable sports included things like cycling, croquet, equestrian sports, golf, and tennis. All of those sports obviously require either large open spaces or specially prepared grounds or access to expensive equipment like bicycles or horses. And these were generally the kinds of sports that tended to be practiced at the universities. Then we have, on the other hand, the disreputable sports or those that were kind of on the moral uh, border, the border between respectability and, 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 uh, and not. And these might include uh, women participating in what were known as the manly sports. So, for instance, female boxers were obviously right out or those that competed regularly against men. And then we have some that, again, were sort of uh, straddled the border Uh, One, for example, is a woman named Etta Hatton, who uh, worked under the stage name Jaguarina, and she was a trained fencer who participated in a number of mounted sword battles against men. And this was a strange uh, sport or competition that was incredibly popular in the later half of the 19th century. Other sports or activities that kind of straddled the line, as I mentioned, uh, included participation in what were viewed as uh, men's sports. So in the 1880s, an effort was made to organize a traveling women's baseball team, but it ultimately collapsed uh, amid fears that it was really simply a front for prostitution, and also because the organizer or the manager of the club uh, took off with all of the club's money. These efforts in the United States were also taking place uh, in the English-speaking world overseas. So, for example, in 1886-87, a women's Australian uh, cricket team saw some success touring around the continent, at one point drawing 15,000 people to, to a single match. In 1890, in England, you had the original lady cricketers who toured again for about a year before that ultimately uh, collapsed. The first known women's soccer game took place in 1881 in Edinburgh, Scotland, and ultimately the two teams played about eight known matches. Initially, press reports and I suppose we could also say crowd reception, as far as we can tell, was fairly sympathetic. This was viewed as some kind of a novelty. But over time, and later matches were marred by uh, pitch invasions, by outright crowd hostility, and by overall bad press. There's a gap of five or six years here, uh, but there were other efforts made in various parts of England. There was a single game documented as being played in 1887. And then in the city of Sunderland in 1889, there seems to have been some activity, including mention of a Canadian women's football team, although there's no documentation to support the existence of such a club. And few, if any, of um, these teams that seem to have emerged in Sunderland played any documented 11 versus 11 games. So it's a sketchy sort of history beyond those first eight known matches in Scotland.
Now, in California, we can see, uh, and San Francisco in particular, that many of these broader themes and cultural trends were also playing out in the city uh, by the bay. So there were reputable sports that were organized as early as 1863. There were groups, associations like the St. Andrews Society and the Caledonian Club that were holding annual games. And these included all sorts of traditional Scottish games, uh, primarily for men, but also included races for boys and for uh, girls. The University of California had a young ladies tennis club from 1890, and an event took place in October 1893, just a few months before uh, the, the women's uh, soccer teams took the field at the Schutzen Club. The club had a ladies' day where they invited the wives of the, the members to come and shoot uh, for a day at the club. And the newspaper reports that the members initially joked uh, this would be you know, you could just imagine them sort of ha ha that this was going to be, quote, a humorous fiasco, unquote. But as the day uh, went on, the women, it, it was obvious, took this very seriously and saw this as an opportunity to demonstrate their skill. And by the end of the day, the men were amazed and uh, surprised at how uh, much better the women were at shooting than, than they had supposed going in. San Francisco also saw its uh, share of these kind of borderline athletic activities. So the famous Jaguarina, for instance, defeated a known, well-known San Franciscan uh, Sergeant Owen Davis in one of those mounted sword matches in 1887. And another famous female uh, sportswoman, I guess we could call her, was named Lillian Smith. And she had been born in California, and reportedly at age 10, she got sick of playing with dolls and asked her father to buy her a rifle. And she soon became one of the nation's foremost and most famous uh, uh, shooters. Eventually, she joined Buffalo Bill's show and toured Europe in the 1880s. She developed an intense rivalry with uh, the probably far more better, more well-known now, Annie Oakley. And the press often made a distinction between Annie Oakley, who was seen as perhaps more uh, cultured, and Lillian Smith, who was uh, generally described as being a kind of uneducated bore. And by 1893, Lillian Smith was back in San Francisco, and there is, in fact, on the roster of uh, women participating in the soccer game in December, there is a Lillian Smith listed, uh, but it's doubtful that it was the same, the same person. Many of these ac athletic activities took place at Central Park in San Francisco. This was an entertainment complex created in 1884, and it was run by a man named Daniel McNeil, who was better known as D.R. McNeil. The main income of Central Park was its use as a stadium, and it had a grandstand and, and, a, and a large field. But also on the site was a saloon, a restaurant, uh, and candy and cigar stores. So it was sort of an all-purpose commercial athletic uh, facility, maybe far ahead of its time. As far as athletic competitions or, or events, I guess we might say, they put on wrestling matches, tugs of war, pedestrian races, balloon ascensions, and other sorts of uh, activities that, that 
to us seem uh, fairly odd, but were incredibly popular in the late 19th century. And they also put on broad theatrical productions, like one that was called The Fall of Pompeii. They also leased the field to the Men's Association Football League that began play in 1892. And I'll have more to say about that in a future podcast. So the idea for a women's association football game seems to have been dreamed up by D.R. McNeil sometime in November of 1893. And he thought, oh, I'll hold this uh, women's football game. And undoubtedly, he viewed it as a novelty and one that would attract crowds. And so at least initially, it was designed uh, as a money-making venture, which is not unusual because that was, in fact, similar ideas often surrounded the formation of women's football clubs in England or indeed the lady cricketers uh, in England and Australia. He uh, told the newspaper that he chose the association rules because other football codes he thought were too violent. And if the women participated in intercollegiate football, as uh, gridiron football was called, or rugby, or even Gaelic football, a, uh, a veritable slaughter would result. Even though it was put on as a novelty and uh, undoubtedly uh, to make money, it was not a farce. Uh, there were managers of two of the men's association football league clubs were uh, assigned to coach and to train the players before they stepped out on the field. They held practices uh, before the games, and the winning team was going to be awarded a silk banner. So although it was set up as a novelty, it was not designed to be exclusively a joke or, or to make fun. Now, who were the players or who were the women who decided that they wanted to take on this task? Well, a, a couple of weeks before the games were scheduled to take place, uh, the newspaper ran an advertisement for a number of active young ladies and that anyone interested was to inquire at Central Park and to talk to one of the managers of these clubs. So it could have been anyone in the city who saw the advertisement or heard about uh, what was going on. The newspapers include at several points listings of names of women who participated or were scheduled to participate in the games, but these lists are often unreliable. Similar uh, challenges plague uh, historians and researchers who want to talk about the history of the men's game uh, in that these names are often incomplete. They often uh, include alternate spellings depending on the day, and of course they they usually include omissions. Uh, men who were on or women or players who were on these rosters may or may not have participated in the actual games. In addition, the women's teams they may have used pseudonyms, uh, like some other uh, female athletes did when participating in these events that were, as I mentioned earlier, kind of on the border of respectability. Another problem in identifying who these women were is that a lot of the names were quite common. So, for instance, one of the players listed was Annie Johnson. And uh, looking through the city directories, I, I found 10 Annie Johnsons listed in San Francisco. One teacher, one weaver, one nurse, one simply listed as Mrs., three widows, and three who were domestic workers. So the Annie Johnson, who may or may not have participated in the game, could have been one of these uh, ten women, or maybe none of them at all. 
it's likely that the mixture, the players, uh, came from a mixture of both middle and lower class uh, young women. I could reasonably identify with some certainty uh, uh, about uh, eight players, four of whom worked as domestics, including uh, that might include a maid or a or a cook. Uh, two were actresses, and two had other occupations. Others who can be identified maybe less uh, less assuredly included a clerk, a couple of dressmakers, and maybe a few widows. So some of these women likely were uh, or came from the margins of society. So, for instance, there was an, uh, a woman named Edna Huntington, and that could have been the same teenager who was later arrested twice in just over a year, once for disturbing the peace and once for being found in the company of a man at a boarding house. Uh, Edna Huntington was ultimately sentenced to the reformatory. Some of these women may have come from the middle class. Was the Bessie Gardner, who was listed as a player, the same one who later competed in local equestrian and tennis competitions? That might indicate that she was uh, more of the middle class, since those sports uh, generally involved a more significant outlay of money that would not have been available to a working class woman. I really like the idea that Helen Anderson, who may have uh, played for the Colleen Bonds, later was the same Helen Anderson who turned up at a meeting of the Equal Rights for Women League. But again, there's no way to know for sure. So game day arrives, and the San Francisco Call, which was one of the city's leading newspapers, described it as a festive occasion. They said there were colorful posters lining the walls of Central Park advertising the match. They described a crowd of several thousand who, who attended. The, the, the crowd was in extremely good spirits. They brought fish horns, which were uh, common at baseball and soccer games during this period. They were kind of a, um, the 19th century version of the Vuvuzela. It was part of the, the women's game was scheduled to take place before uh, one of the, the, the men's uh, games in the local association league. The press coverage was generally positive and not terribly critical overall. And one headline, in fact, read, A healthy pastime on a healthy day in which femininity displays power of endurance. The match kicked off at, at 2 p.m., and the women, significantly, the women wore what was described as cycling clothing, loose-fitting jerseys and knickerbockers, uh, and most of them were uh, wearing tennis shoes. They did not wear the long skirts, corsets, and other restrictive clothing that was generally dubbed both fashionable and appropriate for women to wear when they were out in public. There was some derision, I guess the match report included some derision at comical failed kicks, general running about uh, with, without any seeming purpose, and there was some criticism of those few players who wore, chose to wear high heels uh, instead of uh, tennis shoes. But there was also praise for what was described as some astonishingly good plays. Florence de Montgomery, Catherine Howard, Addie Beaufort, and Josie and Katie Coster were the stars of the match, with Beaufort and Josie Coster scoring the only two goals, giving the victory to the Colleen Bonds. 
It's also interesting that the match reports praises both uh, offensive prowess at times with some, by some of the players and also defensive work uh, by some of the other women. Another match was played on December 10th and drew 2,500 people to, to see this match. Although, unlike the previous one where there was a great description of the events uh, and the match itself, the San Francisco Call decided there was nothing noteworthy about the second game. Although the newspaper said that this was not noteworthy, I, I would argue just the opposite, that it is noteworthy in the sense that these games seem to have attracted little negative reaction. Despite the fact that women were wearing uh, what was known as rational clothing and performing uh, or, or participating in a sport that was generally dubbed to be more of a masculine pastime. I could find no condemnations of these players or the games and no real protests about uh, what was going on. And there was some condescension, as I mentioned in the press, but also some real acknowledgement that the women could and did play the game with skill, even though they had little preparation or training beforehand. What do we know, if anything, about the players? What, what were their thoughts about this game? What were their experiences having uh, taken part. Well, since we know little information about who or we can identify very few of the players with any real certainty, we obviously don't know anything at all about their experiences or thoughts. It was reported that they were paid $2 a match, and the advertisement I mentioned earlier was filed under the Female Help Wanted section of the classified ad portion of the newspaper. Now, $2 uh, a match is an amount that would have been pretty good pay depending on your occupation. So for a maid or a cook, a domestic worker, that would be the equivalent of several days' pay. But it's not great. Uh, it's not uh, an overwhelming amount of money. And so likely there was more than just a desire to earn a few bucks, although that probably didn't hurt, and that was undoubtedly the prime motivator for some of the women. And for middle-class women, $2 a match was probably not, uh, not a, a real significant consideration. So if we think about it, these women had to answer an advertisement in the newspaper that simply said uh, they were looking for active women. It didn't specify that this was for a football match. And then once they found out, they had to agree to take on the role of participating and playing in a game in public before potentially thousands of people. And they didn't know beforehand what the reaction of the crowd might be uh, to their, to their uh, playing in this game. This was a role, of course, that if the newspaper reports are to believe, some of the women excelled at and played uh, extremely well under enormous amounts of pressure. So I think that some of these women undoubtedly saw this as an opportunity to participate in this broader sporting culture that had been emerging in San Francisco and across the United States in the second half of the 19th century. Some of them undoubtedly wanted to challenge themselves physically and to take up this, uh, what was likely a new sport. And undoubtedly, some of them simply wanted to have fun. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter 
at Soccer History U.S. Thank you.